and they're waiting. They're waiting for you. And they'll take you one by one and no one will hear you scream. No one will hear you scream! Welcome to Daughters of Darkness, a podcast focusing on horror, exploitation, art house and cult cinema. I am Kat Ellinger and with me is my co-host Sam Deegan and today's episode is going to be the first in a two-part series focusing on Nightmare USA. So yes, we have decided that we wanted to talk about independent, low-budget American horror, and what better way to focus that than to use Stephen Thrower's magnum opus, Nightmare USA, as a jumping-off point. Because it really, in a way that few other film books are, I, I feel like it's it's just the authority. Like, I'm sure other people have written books on American horror and other people will in the future, but nothing can remotely compare to this one. Well, Unless like he first... does volume two. Yeah, there's a second volume, isn't there, Plan? But this first one's like 540 pages, I think. It's like huge. I think I it nearly dropped huge. it on and my I... foot earlier. And I... <laughs> I did. I dropped it on my foot twice in the last week. It is huge and it's just so big. I th- I've owned it for so long and I haven't even like read to like a quarter of it because it's just massive. But I think of all the books, I think the films that he groups together are these, a particular type of American independent. So I think when people think about American horror cinema, they tend to think of a sort of mainstream type. Absolutely. Whereas, you know, especially in the 70s, there was a lot of horror film that was coming out that was bridging the gap between art house there was a lot of strange cinema coming out of america and a lot of exploitation cinema but in most of it isn't really talked about in in a serious way and i think as far as books go i mean it's not a wholly serious book there is a lot of good humor in it as well but it's it takes the subject matter seriously Um, oh absolutely and in a way that i think I don't know. I mean, so well, it's like Euro much... cult, isn't it? A lot of Euro cult doesn't yeah. really get taken seriously until pretty recently, and it's well, the same and I sort mean, of thing. he yeah, he did the same thing. He wrote that Fulci book, Beyond Terror, and he just wrote that great book on Jess Franco. So, I think he's definitely an authority on not only these films, but he writes about them in a really insightful way and. I think a lot of critics, even though they love the films they're writing about, they kind of are offhanded or they act like, you know, just because this film has some flaws or wasn't made with a lot of money, they, they kind of brush them off in a way that he never does, which I, I think is really wonderful and respectful. And I think some of the films we're going to talk about today and in the next episode, um, Thrower champions them where they haven't been before, especially Deathbed, The Bed That Eats, which we'll get on to talking about. Um, you know, he he was responsible for sort of tracking that film down in a way. And, and, and making, tracking down the director. Yeah, and, and sort of getting more people to know about it because it's such a wonderful film. 
So the focus of these two podcasts will be those. This We're going to call this volume one because we intend to do more of these in the future because 500 odd pages, there's a lot of films in there. And it was a very bit. difficult for us. Well, we just picked 10, didn't we? But it was hard. Well, we picked 10 <laughs> of our favourites. I think it was almost sort of random. Like it's so easy for me to think about movies he wrote about in Nightmare USA that would qualify as some of my favorites. So I kind of just had to sort of close my eyes and pick at random. And because there are just so many. Well, we started off with a list of about 30, didn't we? Yes, (laughs) we did. You know, and then it was like, well, what, you know, we can't do 30 films. That'll be like, you know, six episodes. So (laughs) yes, the rest of the year. It was difficult, but I won't say these are, some of these are our favourites, but they're not particularly any better than any of the other films he writes about, because they're all good. It just happened that we picked these 10. Um, yeah, also, it definitely feels a little random. I think also on Diabolique, by the time this podcast airs, we should have kicked off our season. We're going to start doing theme seasons. And our first theme season will be American Gothic. We're going to run that all over the summer and we've got all our contributors getting involved. We're going to have interviews. We're going to have various features on the theme. And so this sort of ties in nicely with that theme, doesn't it? It really does. And I think one of the things that's so exciting about not only the book, but a lot of the films we chose is I think it kind of will give people an overview of why we wanted to write about American Gothic as a theme and just sort of some of the unifying ideas behind a lot of these movies, even though they are, some of them are similar, but they're all very different from each other, but they tend to have just kind of overarching qualities that I think make them easy to talk about as a group. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I'm calling on all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house. Jessica! Paramount Pictures presents Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And so kicking off our first film, which is probably one of the most gothic of the 10 that we've picked, is Let's Scare Jessica to Death, 1971. Uh, We did mention this on our first uh, three episodes in our Lesbian Vampires um, three-episode series that we did. Um, We should have really mentioned it in the context of Carmela because we talked about that. I think we... We we did mention it, but um, because there aren't any really overt lesbian themes in it, we we didn't include it. So it's good because no. we get to talk about it today in more depth. Yeah, and I think it makes more sense here. It definitely does. I think of all the films, it's probably the most that sort of harbors that sense that we're trying to describe, which is very difficult. It's um, 
because of the films that we're going to talk about, they're very offbeat. They're not, you know, they've got a lot of American elements in them, but then they use influences from European cinema, from art house cinema. Some of them do, um, not all of them, but, you know, yeah. there's definitely a bridging of, of a gap because it's often seen as a divide like Europe and America when it comes to horror. And American horrors usually seen as trashier and more built for drive-ins, whereas European horror can be seen it's as a bit more, more dreamlike yeah and a bit more dreamlike and i think jessica is very euro in its sensibilities well i think a lot of the films that we're going to be talking about are and i was thinking about this earlier and in a way this sort of it's not you can't really call it a genre but this sort of the movies that he writes about in nightmare usa there's almost a parallel to be drawn to film noir because that's also not really a genre. It's a movement that borrows so much from European literature and cinema and was specifically in the case of film noir was made by a lot of European artists, but there are some really distinctive American themes. Yeah, definitely. I think especially with with this one. I mean, you've got yes. it, it comes off the back of Carmina, which we talked about in the first three episodes where a female vampire sort of infiltrates a family and seduces the young daughter. Now, it doesn't follow that specifically, but it does have tones of Carmina. It's definitely influenced by it in some way. Um, oh, absolutely. It was made for Paramount actually, so um which is surprising. It's very surprising. I don't think I knew that, actually. Yeah, and it was directed by John D. Hancock, um, who also co-wrote the script. Um, and it's quite low budget, so, um, but it does make a lot of a very simple premise just through very simple manipulation and also through the, through the lead, who's played by Zora Lampart, she stars as the the Jessica. I think um, if you look at the... A lot of people dismiss it without even seeing it because let's scare Jessica to death sounds like a slasher. Yeah, I don't know necessarily why they chose that as the title. It's an awful title because it has nothing to do with the film. No, and it... So I think something that you and I discussed earlier is how I want to talk about its connection to the women's film, which is again, another sort of tenuous connection to film noir and movies of the forties, but it makes it sound like a slasher version of gaslight or one of those movies where everyone tries to drive a woman insane or even like a bunch of the Jalo titles coming out at the same time, it makes you think it's a movie about people trying to kill a woman and maybe take her inheritance or take something from her, which it's not at all. No, because it starts off, you've got the, so you've got the titular Jessica and she gives a voiceover narrative and we find out that she's, she's recovered from a period where she's obviously been away because she's had mental health issues um, and then she's gone on to a new life with her husband um, and they've gone off to this rural retreat, as it were. They've bought a, a farmhouse, but something really bad's happened. So she starts telling this story um, and it sort of goes full, full circle as it goes through the, through the film. It was the antique dealer, dead! Right here, I swear it, I swear it. 
Duncan. It's true. He was lying right here. And there was blood! I know what you think of me, but I swear it's true. And it was a girl. I'm scared. Is it happening again? So you get that from the offset. You get this thing that this is a woman who can't be trusted. Is she a reliable narrator? Because you already know that she suffered a mental health problem. I think as well, 71, it sort of came off the bat of all that, you know, the repulsion thing. and Yeah, Rosemary's Baby repulsion. Yeah, all the you sisters. Know, female hysteria. And so you, you instantly think because of the title and because of this setup, you know, is the husband and, and the husband's friend is there as well. And then you get a lone drifter woman who turns up. Are they all in on some big scam to sort of drive this woman back to the asylum? You know, has she got money? Do they want to take her money? Is, you know, what's the deal here? So it it does take you completely off guard, I think, because it's so misleading. Um, it, it is. And, and I think that's sort of definitely one of the themes of some of these films is there's a narrator who's unreliable and a person who is suffering mental health issues and it's which very, is yeah. really effective it's very dreamy as well like it starts off it's quite you know it's all foggy it's filmed in connecticut so you've got that whole new england sort of vibe going on and and it's beautiful and it is really beautiful and elements of roland as well because you've got like these little instances where these sort of figures of a woman appear um like a, a woman in a white dress so it's got that european yes. sensibility and you don't really quite know what's going on um and as they get into the farmhouse and they find this woman in the house. Emily. Who, yeah, Emily, who's who's um, a bit of a, like a hippie, the sort of archetype hippie sort of drifter type who they take in. Um, and we, of course she's a ginger. I feel like it's <laughs> always, there's always some sort of evil ginger and I don't know why we're prejudiced against in this way, but Emily really earns it. Yeah, but then you don't know whether she really is or not because you don't know whether to believe Jessica. Um, I think it helps as well because you hear Jessica's inner thoughts. She's sort of given this narrative, so you start to hear what she's thinking and you start to... So there's a lot of scenes where this woman comes into the house and they're sat around and she can see that her husband's interested in Emily. And she and you can hear what Jessica's thinking and what she's making of the situation. She starts to see weird things around the grounds of the house. But she starts to dismiss it and thinks it's her illness. Um, and she hears voices. There's this sort of strange voice that reoccurs. It's really creepy. Which is so, It's like people so whispering. It's, it's quite, it's really Well, creepy. I think sometimes you're supposed to think that it's Jessica's mental illness and maybe she's hearing voices and other times it seems like you're supposed to think that Emily is this malevolent supernatural being and she is projecting these thoughts into Jessica's head. Yeah, because there's something going on. She's very hypnotic as well, the character of she Emily. Is. And she's got quite a sort of intense sort of presence. Well, she also, I think the thing that we didn't mention that also really made me think of symptoms uh, is Jessica finds a, a, photo, a framed photograph in the farmhouse 
of this woman named Abigail Bishop and her family. And there's this local legend about how Abigail Bishop was drowned before her wedding day. And Abigail is a dead ringer for Emily. And Jessica seems more convinced of this than anyone else, which ties back into the whole unreliable narrator thing. Yeah. But when you see the actual photograph, it it's... It's the same actress, Marie Claire Costello, who is the stand-in for Emily. You know, the story about the bishops is really extraordinary. Yeah. Abigail never got to wear that wedding dress. Mr. Dorker. She drowned in the cove behind her house. Your house, I mean. Never found her body. The legend is that she's still alive. Some say she's a vampire. And roams the countryside. Mr. There Dorker, we're sort of in a hurry. Uh, could we have the money? Of course. But you do wonder whether it, whether this is to be believed because, like, you know, like we said, nobody else seems to believe Yeah, her. everyone is dismissive. Which is great because it, it provides a very sort of claustrophobic outs, um, atmosphere from the outset because then Jessica starts to get more and more distressed. Um, the drowning, the creepiest thing in it is this reoccurring image of a bloody woman in the water. In this dress. Oh, it's terrifying. <laughs> it's just horrible. I can't swim anyway, and I've got a thing about water anyway, but she's just floating under this lake, and it's, like, really creepy. And water sort of comes into it a lot, even when they turn up uh, at the Bishop place, which they've bought in their hearse, because that's what they drive. <laughs> oh, yes, there are so many. And I think that's one of the unique things about this film is that it, it takes all of these horror tropes that should be very sort of Adam's family kind of kitschy and it makes them really effective. Like they drive a hearse. She's sort of obsessed with going into cemeteries and doing grave yeah, rubbings, she does grave which she rubbings. hangs in their bedroom. <laughs> like, like that's what she hangs up on the walls as decoration. Yeah, and they come. As they drive into the um, into the local sort of. It's like a tiny town. They come in through the graveyard. There's like loads of fog, and it is very Roland that that bit. So the water thing, um, it could sort of signify sort of. There's a lot of Freudian subtext seems to be going on in there to do with sexual repression. Um, I think the relationship between Emily and Jessica, especially, there's it's not overtly lesbian. There's nothing to suggest. But Emily seems to have a strange hold over Jessica. Like you said, you think she might be tapping into her mind. And I think the use of the water, there's like a sexual repression element there. And and the fact that water's used as like a cleansing thing, but it's also suffocating. There's a lot of uh, subtext about suicide as well, isn't there? And she gets called to the water yes. a lot to sort of drown herself, which is really morbid. Um, as they come into the town over the bridge... There's a sign that says stay forever as they come in. Oh, a little clue, yes, yes, there I'm, is. Sorry, I totally forgot about that, but it's so creepy. Yeah, it is like the whole thing. And the whole and the other thing that um, is great about it is so as you, you go into this, you ca they go into this town and the whole, it's like one of those narratives that was very common at the time where the whole town seem in on it. You've got these like really unwelcoming locals, um, these sort of farming men, and they're really unwelcoming of the newcomers and they've got they've got this whole thing oh it's like people coming into our town but you get this idea that they're all in on it like they are in um 
like Race with the Devil or Brotherhood of Satan or Salem's Lot. You know, you know that or every, Dead and Buried. Yeah, because everybody's got like an agenda, and it's it's really well executed. I think you sort of from the beginning, it's it's not a lot's going on, but you're just thinking, what well, you know, there's something amiss here. I think the only which is I. Th- yeah, go on. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was gonna say I feel like that is one of the common themes of these American films is not only do you have this really beautiful but lonely and kind of threatening landscape, but you have all these small towns just filled with people who are conspiring against you or who you think are conspiring against you. Well, there was it was like a common theme of the day as well. Like the rural was seen as other which is a very gothic sort of theme in itself. Yes. And the city was seen as it was safe. And you had a lot of these narratives where it was like outsiders coming into a small rural community. I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like three years later, made it, made that the whole film, you know, of outsiders coming in and wandering into these wild, you know, community. Like uncivilised communities. And it is, a, yeah, it's a recurring theme of the time. It's used really, really well. Um, I also made, like, with a connection to American Gothic specifically, um, not that it it's actually follows the same sort of narrative structure, but to Charles Brockton Brown's Wyland. Um, you've got a theme oh, in yeah. that book where they hear voices. It actually turns out to be, um, there's an explanation for it, it's not supernatural, but... I thought that was a link there to American Gothic in that they're in this old building. You hear these like strange whispering and stuff that are, that are sort of telling Jessica to do stuff, basically. So I thought that was another nice touch that makes it so gothic, but yet so American as well. There's a lot of tied to the they've got the, the past and the present as well is featured heavily. Like they used Yeah, and to, it's a it's a weird sort of contentious link like. It's not that the past is sort of something that they've grown from or they have this nostalgic connection to, but it's almost hostile. Yeah, definitely. And I think that angle is used really well, especially with the New England theme. It does all tie into a very American sense of gothic. Um, You know, from the outset, when they find that photo, like, they're fucked. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And she gets the wedding dress out. You just think, you know... There's like, well, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Which, incidentally, going back to our first episodes, links into Blood and Roses. It, it definitely Blood and Roses, does. Because that's sort of, the catalyst for that is putting on a wedding dress from some vampire. And and it is suggested that Emily is a vampire, which we haven't mentioned yet. Um, we haven't, but I think there are also, and I want to talk about this more when we get to Messiah of Evil, but I think there are a lot of connections between Let's Scare Jessica to Death, Messiah of Evil, and another film we talked about in the lesbian vampire episodes, Mary, Mary, Bloody Mary, where she, it's suggested that she's a vampire, but she, it also seems like instead of having fangs that grow in her mouth, she's forced to use knives and razors to feed on people. Yeah. So, so it's, it's yeah, a it's, little less supernatural, a little more nebulous. You don't know if she's just human and violent or if there is that sort of more modern take on the supernatural. But that's what I really enjoy about it. Because if you look at the context of vampire films in the 70s, like you look at the Euro vampires and, you know, you had Roland doing his thing and Jess Franco and it was it got very erotic, but it still sort of followed a very 
traditional sort of flow. And the British were doing Hammer, they were doing the Vampire Lovers, but it was America that really led the charge to reinvent vampirism for a contemporary audience. Um, I know with Jessica they do keep links to the path, but it's very much a contemporary film. It's it's concerned with contemporary things like, you know, coming from the city and fitting into rural communities. Um, you've got all that going on. It deals with mental health issues or possible mental health issues like modern films were at the time. Um, but then America was doing stuff like Count Yorga as well. So they really yes, were which, leading the charge. Which we will get to soon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were leading the charge to sort of ignite something else into that vampire myth i think um let's scare jessica to death it just gets so fucking ignored though which makes and me i don't cross. know why no i don't know like, why maybe it's because well, people like think the, it's a slasher i don't know well and it, like the amount of attention paid to something like rosemary's baby i mean i really enjoy that film i love polanski but this is equally as good a film as that or The Exorcist. I, I mean, it's it's actually probably holds the test of time better and has less sort of unintentionally funny parts. I mean, I've I've seen it so many times at this point, and watching it again to prepare for the podcast, it's still creepy. Like the soundtrack alone is, which it's like like we just said, there's all these sorts of like whispering and sounds of the forest and the wind and the farmhouse. But then there are these really subtle, like sort of creepy ambient electronic sounds from uh, this guy named Walter Sear. And it just, it's aged so well in a Definitely. way that I almost don't even understand. No, it is. It's just timeless because it, and because it is a very human sort of narrative as well. You can really relate to Jessica. She's, she, and, and I think, um, I think Zoe Lampard, she gives such a great performance in it. She was really, um, I don't think she did very much genre wise, did she? But she's great. No. She's very fragile in it and she's very, you know, natural i think that's well, the other good she, thing about it the performances in it are really natural compared to other they, low budget yes. stuff you, the, you feel that they're approaching it as a serious narrative and not a hokey hokey sort of horror film they're taking it seriously um especially um the lead role um well and i mean she so she has a part in exorcist 3 but i think she really carries the film and the thing that I think makes it so effective is she has this sort of like something that I can sort of weirdly relate to is it seems like when she's uncomfortable, her way of dealing with it is just by smiling. And she has this sort of really innocent sense of optimism. Like she just really wants things to work out. She doesn't want to be ill. She doesn't want to be frightened. She just... She wants to enjoy the country and have a good time with her husband and her friend. And there's something really heartbreaking about it. Like, she makes these faces where she smiles but looks like her heart's being broken and she's about oh, to burst into definitely. tears. There's a scene when um, Emily, one of the first nights that Emily's in the house, and I think her husband, Duncan, he's, he was a musician in the city. And Emily starts strumming this acoustic guitar and he gets his bass out and they're sort of jamming along and she's watching them and can tell that he wants Emily. Um, but she starts laughing and smiling, but you can hear what she's thinking. 
and it's just it's heartbreaking in a way it's a bit of a shit really <laughs> that's it's so horrible he runs and... out of patience really quickly as well he's just you know he's not particularly i think his friend woody is a lot more sympathetic he seems to to care more But I think at least what I took from it is that so initially they come across Emily, who's a squatter in the house, and she says she doesn't know anyone lived there, that anyone owned it, and they want her to leave. But Jessica, trying to be kind and friendly, Jessica says, you know, why don't you have dinner with us and just stay the night and tomorrow we'll drive you into town. And then by the next morning, it's Jessica's idea that Emily should stay. And she's just so like sort of generous and giving and initially Emily starts a sexual relationship with Woody and I think the reason that Woody wants Duncan to pay attention to Jessica is because of competition yeah and it sort of winds up being this thing where everyone and and it's really really effective I feel like I said that a million times but it is I think it ties in. It ties in with that. Um, You know, we talked about on the first three episodes, keep going back to those. And if you haven't heard them, check them out on our homepage. Um, We talked about this, this sort of setup that comes in the lesbian vampires, where you have a love triangle with a husband and the female vampire and the wife. And so the female vampire will try and seduce the husband to get to the wife. It happens in Blood and Roses, in a way. But it happens more in Daughters of Darkness, our namesake. And I think there's some of that. But obviously Daughters of Darkness was the same year as Jessica. So it's not that it borrowed that, but it's it's definitely... Strange parallels. Yeah, you feel that um, while Emily seems to be interested in the guy, she's not really. Not if we believe Jessica's what's going on in her head which is this whispering saying come to us we've been waiting for you it's really it's almost not yeah but it's not it doesn't seem sexual it feels predatory in a different way like she and again this is sort of my weird brain connecting it to messiah of evil it it almost feels like emily wants her as some sort of sacrificial figure yeah like she she wants to prey on her Oh, my God. And there's a scene in it when she calls Jessica to the water. Yes, we haven't talked about that yet. To go swimming. That is horrible. It's a really horrid scene. It's enough to make you never want to go swimming in a lake (laughs) with another woman ever again. Yeah, and it's it's played out really well. They sort of go down to the beach. Um, Jessica's starting to feel a bit uncomfortable around Emily and uncomfortable around the house. They go down to the beach. And she says, oh, I don't really want to swim. And Emily says, it's okay, you can just sunbathe. So she's... Well, and there's the sunscreen. Yeah. And so she's sat... Where she sort of forces 
Yeah. She sort of forces Jessica to put on sunscreen and, and really puts it on her. Yes, and keeps like massaging her and you can see how uncomfortable Jessica's getting and Emily seems to be taking a very sadistic pleasure yeah. in how freaked out Jessica is. So she then drags her in the water and tries drowning her, which is quite hideous and then says, "Oh, what I was only playing." Oh. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you. Are you all right? Please. I was just playing. That's all right. That's all right. Yes. I'm so Thank sorry. You. you okay? No, that's all right. Please, it's all right. I didn't mean to scare you. I'm sorry. It's so malicious. It is. I think there's a lot of sadism in it. I mean, with the with the seduction of the husband and the friend as well, it's sort of played out quite sadistically, which is where I got the connection to Daughters of Darkness because there's a lot of sadism in that. But it's not absolutely. It's not a particularly violent film, and it's not a particularly sexual film on that level. No. And Jessica's a very asexual character, but then a lot of these hysterical women normally are. Um, they sort of take that away from the character, don't they? They do, but she's not... She's quite childlike, so, isn't she, and fragile? Well, that that's that's what I was going to say. I, I feel like that's what Polanski was going for with Rosemary's Baby, where he wants her to seem, and I mean, she looks like a fucking 12-year-old boy, but he wants her to seem really childlike. But in Rosemary's Baby, she doesn't. She just seems really corked up and repressed. Yeah. Whereas Jessica seems genuinely innocent and childlike. Yeah, she's, she's not... Um, repressed particularly that you see but she just doesn't seem sexual in any way she seems very childlike and endearing because of that yeah she's so sweet and then she just gets all that um there is a bit of gore in it i think maybe that's what puts people off that there's not a nerf there's no fangs or anything and you know there's not a lot of action to speak of but it's packed with tension just like symptoms i mean you brought up symptoms yeah. before it's similar sort of vibe it's very i mean it would be a great double feature it would definitely they would really will go well and when violence does happen it's quite it's quite graphic um not that there's much and it's also very ambiguous uh the last thing i wanted to mention is in one of the final scenes you see jessica in a boat that was totally ripped off by friday the 13th <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. I, it's it's almost the same exact scene. Like, I, I think you could do sort of a moment-by-moment moment comparison, and it's just, it's kind of annoying, actually. Well, you know, Cunningham always said, I mean, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't admit to ripping off Bay of Blood, so <laughs> he would have acknowledged Jessica. But it does make you think, um, you know, where he was getting oh. the sources from. I have well, a bit and we of should talk about, about... <laughs> and then Friday the thirteenth, but we won't go there. Well, we could go there in another episode yeah. and talk about Bay of Blood. Yeah, 
Yeah, go But on. I think there's a weird thing, again, that ties into Messiah of Evil, where there are these beings who are sort of, they're not zombies, they're more like ghouls, and that's kind of what Jessica sees in the water. Yeah. And that's sort of, so it's not just a woman alone in a rowboat out on a lake. It's, there's there are things that pop up in the water. And it's very, I don't want to say very American, because it certainly happens in other literature and other films, but it's very weirdly Lovecraftian. Yeah. I think as well and with creepy. The, and the New England connection as well. Absolutely. So talking of vampires, let's move on another year to 1972. I know you're dying to talk about this one. I can't wait. <laughs> he rose from the deathly silence of the tomb to bathe the world in blood. See Grave of the Vampire. Inside your womb isn't a human being. There's nothing wrong with my baby. He was conceived in a grave and weaned on human blood. Could he ever deny the horrible evil within himself? He is absolutely evil. Horrifying in his lusting blood. Your blood. The grave of the vampire. Yes, yeah, so the film we're going to talk about now is John Hayes' Grave of the Vampire, which there, there are plenty of connections between Grave of the Vampire and Count Yorga, which came out in 1970, but Grave of the Vampire is one of those films that someone made me watch I guess probably eight or nine years ago at this point, I had never heard of it. I had no idea what to expect. And I think, again, like Jessica, the title is to blame. It's it's sort of nebulous. It sounds like Mark of the Vampire or like something from the 30s or 40s, and you don't really expect anything of it. But it is so... It's, it's like a cross between an exploitation film and Count Yorga in the yeah. sense that... It's yet another American reimagining of the vampire myth and an attempt to bring that myth up to date, but in a totally different way than Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And I feel like anytime I tell someone to watch this movie, they, they don't know what I'm talking about. And no, it's, it's one of those things. I think when I came so to forgotten. it, I thought I, I 
came to it not knowing anything about it um, a while back. Which and, is the best way. And thought it was, wrongly thought it was like a 70s Euro film. And then started watching That's it. That's how it sounds. <laughs> thought, yeah, I thought it was just one of those typical sort of Italian gothics and then put it on. And there's a couple in a graveyard. Um, oh, you know, which is the best. I mean, <laughs> with the guy the proposing. Fact, oh, the fact that he thought, proposes. What the fuck is this? <laughs> it's... It's so insane. So it's it's these two super straight-laced, really normal people named Paul and Leslie. And they go to a graveyard so that Paul can propose marriage and then they can make out in a car. And Paul wears an Argyle sweater and he's He and he's wears receding. the most ridiculous sweater. <laughs> I'm not sure if they're supposed to be teenagers because they act like those sort of hammy 1950s teenagers, but they definitely are not Lev's young dream. They're not. You just think, what the hell? And and the dialogue is amazing. Because it's Leslie's like, the whole oh, film, it's just it's so amazing. beautiful here. And it's like some steamy old graveyard. Um, With an open grave that they're standing next to. Like, yeah. no big deal. We're, we're about to get engaged next to this open grave. Which, and while I think that's very romantic, you wouldn't assume that some, like, <laughs> Argyle sweater-wearing guy would. I don't think I'll ever be frightened of graveyards. They're special for us. Hey, it was almost this very spot. Is that why you brought me here tonight? No, that's not why I brought you here tonight. I saw you peeking into the bedroom where Lola Blossom was getting dressed. I wasn't peeking. What do you call it, then? She just left the door open. Go on, Paul. I merely suggested to her that perhaps she should close it. Yes, Paul. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then they get into the car and um and they're sort of making out and then this vampire appears from the grave who's like very aged at the time um played by michael pataki michael fucking pataki oh god he rips the door off like the hulk <laughs> Because he hasn't been laid in like you know sixty years or whatever he's been in this grave. He hasn't no, been laid. I think, so he just I think gets it's really been... angry. He's like peering through the window at them, and then he just. I think it's been a, a five or six years. Yeah. Oh, is it only five or six years? I thought it was seven. Well, because later. because basically, you learn a, a minute or two later from what we're talking about right now that he's a serial killer named Caleb Croft who was arrested and then executed by i believe the state of california and for some reason has been in his grave for a number of years and there's only one detective who who magically makes this connection (laughs) but so continue he rips the car he rips the door off the car like the hulk and he kills the argo guy and then he drags paul leslie who is just credited as the unwilling mother (laughs) Um, which she is into the grave to rape her Um, because that's what vampires do yeah because that's what vampires do they don't crave blood they they need to get laid um so then the next thing we see she's in the hospital and and we find out that she's pregnant and um it's got a bit of a rosemary's baby tie to it because this doctor sort of 
has a look at her and then tells her that the baby is dead and she must have an abortion. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, and he, he insists. Think, so it's like in have, 19... Yeah. yeah, in 1972, this doctor is like, absolutely no, this baby is draining your precious life fluids and you have to abort. And, it's and not she freaks living. out and refuses. Yeah, it's not living. It's, it's a dead thing. And you just think, well, <laughs> how would you even know that? They didn't... Did they even have scanning equipment or anything in those days? I don't know. A baby. Paul's baby. <laughs> Leslie, listen to me. I'm asking that you have an abortion. Why? Leslie, what's growing inside of you isn't alive. Your body is nourishing it, giving it blood and oxygen. But when it leaves your womb, it'll be dead. There must be some mistake. There's nothing wrong with my baby. I'm healthy and Paul was healthy. You don't know everything. Olga was right. Leslie, I've been your doctor most of your life. Now, there's no mistake. What's inside your womb isn't a human being. It's a parasite. It'll drag you down and it'll kill you. Now, we must take that parasite out of you. She goes off like Rosemary with her, with her nursemaid and has this baby. Well, and her nursemaid is like a weird hippie woman who doesn't believe in medicine and has this crazy line where she's like, my husband died from the pills. Don't let them give you the pills. <laughs> so they have this baby. Oh, God. They have a home birth. Yeah. A super insane home birth with no medical professionals. It's her and this woman who is like this, this basically telling her to them. like... <laughs> yes, who's telling her to take all these deep breaths and she makes these faces like she's having <laughs> orgasms, not like she's delivering a child. It's oh, terrifying. Man. So when the baby's born, she's like, why is he so gray? <laughs> and cold. I've never seen a baby look so gray. But they find out that the baby is, and this is this is a trope that is just not being used enough, in my opinion. He's not a vampire, he's a dampire or dampier. He's um, basically Blade the early yeah. years. <laughs> and apart from Blade sort of popularising it, although um, the guy he turns out to be isn't isn't really Blade. Um, Thank God. No. he. Um, you just think, why isn't this used more? He's sort of like a half-breed. Um, the co One connection before we move on that I did make was to another film that follows a very similar structure is Dracula. It's a French film called Dracula and Son from 1976. Pair a feast yes. with Christopher Lee, and it's a very similar story. Although that's a horror comedy, although Grave of the Vampire is a horror comedy as well. Just not well, intentionally. unintentionally. Um, you know, Drakensen is actually made as a horror comedy, and there's this strange sort of Oedipus line that comes out um, later on, which we can discuss. It's similar because both for the father and son go for the same girl. Um. We go along years later and we see it's William Smith who's pay playing James Eastman. He's the son. Um, although his mother at the time thought that her dead lover, the Argyle man, was the father, for some reason... Well, she insisted. Yes, this is why she has the baby. Um, and, then, and then you have this great moment where you realise, you slut. 
you <laughs> you're this like straight laced lady who dresses like a librarian and your immediate thought is like oh well i just got engaged so so either she has no clue about sex or yeah, she's like oh yeah we, ha- we have sex in the cemetery all the time <laughs> yeah they did not actually do anything they didn't get past first base in the back of the car so it's a bit no. inexplicable she's sort of you know the fact that she's just actually been raped as well um, but didn't have sex with the Argyle man. Um, well, not that we saw. But when we get to James, when he's sort of grown up and he's a sort of a burly man, uh, he seems to know all about who his father was and the fact that he was a vampire who was then a serial killer and he's tracked him down. Um, he, um, he The father is now posing as a, a professor. <laughs> oh, like we forgot to talk about the A professor of the occult. <laughs> we forgot to talk about the blood. It got so carried away there. Oh, yeah. So she figures out. So she's trying like right after they they talk about how the baby is gray and cold. She's trying to nurse the baby. The baby has no interest in breast milk, which neither do I. So good job, kid. But she accidentally cuts herself and drops blood on her nipple. Like I guess sometimes you do. And the baby's really excited about the blood and she makes this sort of magical intuitive leap where she's like, oh, I guess this baby just wants to feast on blood and cuts her own breast and is like, well, now I found a new way to nurse. And it's and amazing. that's all got that's made a, a of that. a close-up shot of a baby's mouth with blood being like sp- Yes, an actual baby, not a doll. Licking its lips. And then you've got the crazy doodle woman (laughs) filling up bottles with syringes of blood. Uh, Yes, so she, (laughs) they, and again, these two women are not medical professionals, but the doula just sort of takes blood out of her arm with a syringe and shoots it into a bottle. And it's just like, what the hell? My mother found it difficult to tell me that I wasn't like other children. I could never share life with whole human beings. I slowly learned that the thing that raped my mother and fathered me was no living, feeling man, but a malignant force, a cancer, that refused to be destroyed. It wasn't only her blood that my mother gave to keep me alive. Her youth and her own life were sucked up into the syringe that fed me. I came to hate Caleb Croft for creating me in his image and for using my mother as a spawning ground for his evil. I'm determined to destroy him. I've tracked him from country to country to the colleges and universities where he finds a fresh young blood he craves. Luck or an animal's sense of danger keeps him always one step ahead of me. But the circle is closing. Soon I'll meet my father face to face. Soon I'll have him where I want him. So then to the sort of present time when we've got... We've got um... James Eastman, who's 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 a student in this class, even though he was actually five years older than Michael Pataki when they did this. Was he really? Yeah. He, <laughs> he doesn't look younger. like a student. He looks about 40. I don't know how old he was. But well, he just looks really out of place of in this that. classroom, sat at a little table. <laughs> just... but, but no, but I think, I think they address that because... Yeah, it seems like they make everyone in the class school. is an adult. Do they say yeah. it's like night school? So, well, if you were going to do a course in the occult, you'd probably go to night school to do that, wouldn't you? I mean, I would hope so. So the dad's there. He doesn't. He's not aware that his son's arrived. He's teaching a class on the occult, um, which is a ruse to have some sort of weird seance to resurrect his dead vampire wife. Um, Who was burnt? <laughs> oh, and so we. So I think we said that 
the detective who he kills by slamming a coffin lid down on this man's head and then drinking his blood <laughs> after he's deceased. The detective figures out that he's Caleb Croft, but we later learn that Caleb Croft is an alias for Charles Croydon, who is a vampire that's over 100 years old, and his beloved wife was burned at the stake or executed in some way for being a vampire. No, I think she was burned, just to, just to add that yeah. into the mix as well, because, you know staking america they like to burn people (laughs) (laughs) so it all gets very crazy and there's two women basically in this in this um i mean the rest of the story doesn't really matter because it's just these two women there's Anne arthur who is a spitting image for this dead wife sarah and then there's this mystical hippie woman called anita anita Anita, (laughs) who actually makes the connection well, she stood in no, the library. And she just goes so Croydon, Croft, Lockwood. And you just think, no, how it's, did she it's like that? <laughs> it's like the same scene from Son of Dracula where they're like, Alucard? What can that mean? And then it reflects in a mirror and they're like, wow, Alucard is... Or no, I think they write it out on a piece of paper. But it's like the film is full of these insane intuitive leaps that don't make any fucking sense. And Anita... You're thinking the whole time, like, and and it's this this actress named Diane Holden who wasn't really in a lot of things, but she's the very sort of brunette, seductive, she's very like intense, Bride of Dracula type. She? She's very intense. She is, and she has these amazing. So she's obsessed with the occult, and she has these amazing reproductions of tarot cards in full poster size <laughs> all over the apartment I that know. she shares with Lynn Peters. They're amazing. <laughs> Whereas Lynn Peters is like a British actress. I think she was in a lot of TV, and she's very like stiff upper lip. She they looks make like a someone's mom about her Britishness at one point. She's I think so they reserved. do. They make this like comment. She's so reserved and she looks so much older. And, and this is the <laughs> weird thing about this movie is that no one looks young. Like Lynn Peters looks like she's in her 30s and like she's someone's mom. But everyone is drawn to her and just sort of gives poor Diane Holden the brush off. Like, well... You would have sex with all of us, and she tries. She tries to have I know, sex. And Diane with... Holden would as well. I mean, she's just brimming with it. She's just. <laughs> she is. The librarian. And, but everyone turns her down. <laughs> the librarian. So oh, we think God. we think um, old Lockwood. He might have changed his ways, but then he goes to try and get a library book out, and the library's closing. It's the best scene <laughs> in the movie. And and you know he wants to get this book out. <laughs> he wants to get this book out, and the librarian's like, "No, we close. You're not allowed to take that out now. It's like five o'clock." Um, and in this like really strange sort of transition, the librarian sort of undoes her hair and starts brushing her hair and shakes it out yeah, and makes all like, like sticks her chest out yeah, and looks hair at is him so nice and... and all this. And then she's like, "Oh, thank you. I used to be a model." And then he's like, "Can I get that book?" And she's like, "No." So he goes apeshit, kills her. <laughs> the book, Miss Fenwick. The library has very strict rules. I can't make any exceptions. You led me to believe that I could take it. I did not. All that business about your hair and your eyes. Good night, Professor. You were using me. You have got to go. (laughs) Using me. (laughs) Using me. I think it's important to talk about how he's such a nasty, vindictive... 
like asshole. Oh, he's hideous. The vampire. He's like really sort of cowardly and sneaky. He kills. Well, he kills all these people. And then drinks their blood after they're dead because he doesn't want to have to deal with them coming back. Like, he's very he's very particular about who is going to join him in, you know, eternal life. Like, he really only wants Lynn Peters' character. And so... Because she looks so much like the wife. And this yes. taps into Dracula in some because there's a similar line there where Christopher Lee is obsessed with this woman who looks like his dead human wife. But his um, dampier half-breed son falls in love with the same woman, and so they're they're virtually fighting over the same woman, and the son gets the girl. So he's not happy about that 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 Lim Peters has been laid by the son. Um, no, and the scene is ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> so they they really try very hard to make William Smith, who so William Smith is in all these movies as like a Can biker I just say, or a yeah, cowboy. I was gonna say and, he's in the film that should never be named. He's in the film that should never be named, but I'm gonna say it. he's in Boss Nigger, uh, which is such a good movie, and we will definitely have to return to this in another. <laughs> it's another like you episode, see it on anything but, though, and it's like, oh, should I say it? But um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, you should say it because it is fantastic. But he's also in Hammer as well. He's in that as well. A Maniac Cop, and and he's in another absolutely brilliant sort of racism themed film, The Thing with Two Heads. Yeah, he's in that as well, which I fucking love. And Invasion of the Bee Girls, so he's got quite a pedigree. And, and Conan the Barbarian, yeah. The Outsiders, Red Dawn. He's in so much stuff, but he's so miscast here in such a comical <laughs> way. Like so because cardboard. he's supposed to be well, he's supposed to be this like Byronic hero where he's sort of gloomy <laughs> and brooding and. He turns everyone down because he's misunderstood and he lives this life of misery where he's just trying to get revenge on his vampire rapist father. But he and Lynn Peters have the most ridiculous sex scene <laughs> and uh, it's, and he's all it's a wonder to behold. He's all chest and hair. Um, I, he's shoulders and chest and hair. He's a massive. He looks like, you know, he looks like a major chip hazard sort of torso <laughs> with, a, with a wig on. He just really doesn't. I think Michael Pataki is absolutely brilliant though, but then he was in Return of Count Yorga. He was in The Baby. He was. Um, and Michael Pataki is... He's one of those actors where... And I think we should talk about Yorga for a second. So... Robert Quarry was basically being groomed by American International Pictures to be the successor to Vincent Price, which I'm sorry, that's never going to happen. No, I know. And, and he was in um, the second Vibes film as well, which he's quite good yes. in that. He is quite good in which, that. But he's he, no, no he's really Price. good. He's really good. And I like Robert Quarry a lot, but it just... He's no Michael Pataki either, which I feel like is sort of a mean thing to say. But Pataki has this really weird quality where you could picture him in mainstream films. I mean, he's in Rocky Four. He's in Easy Rider. You could you could he's sort of the kind of actor you could picture being in shows like Law and Order. And I mean, he has a ridiculously prolific career, but he's also in Dead and Buried, he's The Baby. He's quite sleazy though as well. And yes, he was in The Baby. but in such a good way. And he was also in the last porno flick with Mariana Hill, who we're going to talk about yes. in a bit because she's in Messiah of Evil. So that was like an yeah, interesting yeah, he's, connection. There. He's everywhere. It's like he's, I feel and like we can make Zoltan. so many connections. <laughs> 
He is in Zoltan, which is between that and the baby, like what more do you need? But he also directed his own horror movie. He directed Mansion of the Doomed, which I feel like at some point we need to do sort of an evil surgeon, evil oh doctor my God. episode. Did he direct Be- that? The one with Lance Henriksen? He did. With the eyes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's so it's basically Mansion of the Doomed is basically kind of a modern update on Les Yeux Sans Visage and it's it's amazing this crazy surgeon cutting out eyes and but it, he directed it like it doesn't make any sense <laughs> it's He's, an amazing and all these people with no eyes are stuck in the basement it's Richard yes, Basehart it's insane it's Richard Basehart is the mad professor he wants to restore his daughter's eyes but it keeps going wrong and so he keeps all the people whose eyes he's stolen because he wants to restore all their sight, but he doesn't like realise do. that you need a pair of living eyes. So there's always going to be like a, a missing... There's always going to be someone without eyes. <laughs> Lance Henriksen's got there with no eyes. It's to, oh, that is quite amazing, actually. I didn't know he directed that. And so this is weird. why Pataki is so much more <laughs> worthy of celebration than he has been. He is amazing. Well, he's Sorry, totally... Robert Quarry, oh. but I love Michael Pataki. Well, and he is good in this. He's absolutely brilliant, even though he hasn't really got a lot to work with. Um, no, he pretty much carries the film, even though he's only in a couple scenes. Well, like he's so seedy and, like you said, nasty and cruel, and he's a bit of a shit house. You just wouldn't trust him, would you? Oh, he's terrible. And there's <laughs> so there are two the two scenes that uh, outside of the, <laughs> outside of the scene with the librarian. My two other favorite scenes. So there's this one scene where a woman who's alone in her kitchen, like she's making dinner, she's listening to the radio, she hears a strange sound in the basement, and it's him basically creeping around in the basement (laughs) waiting for her to come downstairs so that he can kill her and drink her blood. But once again, he kills her first because he's that much of a fucking creeper. And during this... Yeah, oh god, the shower. But <laughs> he, Oh yeah, so so when he finally kills when he finally kills Anita, there's this horrible scene where he knocks on the door <laughs> and he he asks for Lynn Peters and Anita's like, "Oh, she's not here. She's out on a date." And then she tells him Not thinking at all of her personal safety, she tells him, I know that you're Charles Croydon and I want you to make me a vampire. I've researched every written word on the black arts. The occult, voodoo, witches, vampires. Boyd describes you perfectly. Lockwood, Croft, Croydon. You're imagining things, Miss Jacoby. I want you to make me a vampire. Slowly mix my blood with yours. Until one night, while I'm bathing in the light of the full moon, the black magic will take place. And I will come to you as your bride and serve you for all eternity. And if I were Croft or Croydon, The idea of a companion for all eternity? The relationship would become a bit stale, don't you think? And he acts all seductive, like, okay, you're hot, I'll make you a vampire, we'll have sex for eternity. But he grabs a kitchen knife and stabs her to death and then drinks her blood and (laughs) leaves her viscerated body in the shower. (laughs) 
Which is amazing because Lynn Peters it's, comes back uh, from, from a sweaty night with the sun, gets in the and shower. And finds her and freaks I'm out. Laughing, yeah. But this she, also, is quite hideous. It's very It's grotesque. so hideous. But then he's but there. Who, who walks, but who walks into their apartment and is like, oh, that's cool. The shower's already running. I'll just get in. Like, <laughs> oh, come on, Lynn Peters. She, but my, my favorite scene next to the librarian scene is... They have this seance where he's trying to put the spirit of his dead wife into Lynn Peters' character, and she freaks out, and she has to go lay down, and James goes to check on her, and so he locks all the doors to this ornate, very beautiful, very sort of Count Yorga-looking room, and he pretty much tells them all that he is Croydon, and then he kills everyone in the room in a period of, like, three minutes. And there's this amazing scene where there are these two kind of, like, buxom college mainstream hippie chicks, and he he has clearly, when the camera pans over, he's clearly already killed one woman and drained her blood, and he has his hand around her throat, and at the same time is drinking blood from the second woman's throat, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's grabbing her boob while he's doing it. Because he's the boss. <laughs> he really is. It's so amazing. <laughs> I was going back to the shower bit, the bit I love about that isn't the corpse. She looks down at this corpse and starts screaming sort of and she's in the shower with her he's there in the in the sort of glass like just hissing (laughs) hissing in the glass like a creeper (laughs) like a little creep but then james shows up and rescues her and carries her away and you're like oh christ before we finish up can we just talk about the showdown because that's just amazing oh my god it's so good and i feel like okay so the showdown scene it's like an episode of the a-team it just really it, it is like an episode of the A Team, but I feel like it also borrows a little bit from Hammer because Hammer, even though so many of their vampire film, I mean almost all of their vampire films are period pieces up until this year where they did Dracula AD nineteen seventy two, they always end with these very physical confrontation scenes. But this scene like kicks it up a notch, yeah. and they have this ridiculous physical battle well, where Michael James rips no, he's the not doors Peter off Cushing, the wall. Is he? he can rip he can rip a car door off with his bare hands, so he's not going down with it with, without a fight. No, and it's crazy. They're getting thrown through windows. James Eastman's clothes are all like ripped to shreds. <laughs> They're like really punching each other. It's absolutely brilliant. I just think And it goes on for a, a while. Like ages and ages before he gets a big stake at the end. You just think that's just pure class. <laughs> so good (laughs) i don't know we need to move on now to something else that is equally as good um this film it's okay it's arguably better but in a less funny way yeah it's not really funny um messiah of evil 1973 this is one of those films that i it's one of those films i always find myself telling people to see and they're just like what huh 
you know. Um, it did actually yeah, end no up idea. getting a Blu-ray release in the end, so more people know about it now, which is good. But unfortunately, but it I came think, out on isn't Code, it a code Red. Red release? Yeah, so it was very yeah. limited. So there's probably people that still haven't seen it, and um, everybody needs to see this film. It's just a fucking masterpiece. Immediately, yeah. I, I feel like next to Let's Scare Jessica to Death, if you are going to watch any single film, not only from the two episodes that we're doing on these, but any single film from Nightmare USA, it should probably be Messiah of Evil because it's just so terrifying. It really is. It's so creepy. And it's another one of those films It sort of follows on a Euro vibe on some, some level. It's not particularly coherent. Also, if you're looking for yeah. sort of realism or coherence, you're not going to get it here. It's very dreamlike. Um, but also so Lovecraftian. Yes. Like, I think for my money, it's the best... And obviously it's not a direct adaptation, but I think it's the best Lovecraftian film ever made. We've got this just strange mythos, isn't it? That's not fully explained because it's quite ambiguous, which is another thing I love about it. Again, yes. like Jessica, it starts off with a woman who's in a mental asylum giving a voiceover. Um, and we hear that some horrible event is is taken off, and so you've once again you've got an unreliable narrator from the start, which is Arietti, who's played by Mariana Hill. Um, he was in a, a shitload of horror and exploitation High Plains films. Drifter, and also. worked with Michael Pataki, so obviously instantly a legend. Um, instantly, just by proximity. Before we go on to the plot, it was it was directed by um, Willard Huyuk and Gloria Katz, who are a writing team. Um, yes, I think they, so they made Howard the Duck. They made which I Howard feel like the Duck. And they, I don't understand. No, but they also directed a 1979 film called French Postcards. That had which I've never seen. Marie, no, I haven't seen it. I just, I was just researching it, but it's got Marie-France Pissier in it, who was in um, really? Alan Rob Greeley's Trans-Europe Express. Well, and she's also in La Note Bleu, uh, the Jouaski film. Yeah, so, which we've just talked about, and you can check out that episode on our homepage. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting, because you just think, how do they get from Messiah of Evil to some well, strange also, French film. Um, but they also wrote American Graffiti. Yeah, and, and Indiana Jones. Temple of Doom. Yeah. So, and they were quite sort it's of prolific so in their writing. I think they only made four films, though. This being one, which is amazing. Um, I think it had a reasonable budget as well. It's 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 um the cast. So you've got uh, Mariana Hill in it, and you've also got Michael Greer playing the sort of Lothario Tom. He was yes, openly the hippie, gay. The weird he was like Lothario. a gay icon. He was in a yeah, lot of which gay is a little insane here. <laughs> so it's odd casting from the start. Um, I think Mariana Hill's absolutely brilliant in it, though. She, she is. She sort of starts off by saying that she, she, you know, this horrific thing had happened, that she'd gone off to look for her dad. This is very Lovecraftian. He'd been writing these letters to her that were getting more and more erratic and strange about this, this sort of things that were happening in the town. He's an artist. And then he severed all contact. The father was Joseph Young. So she goes off to this coastal town, sort of in the middle of nowhere, to look for the father because she's worried about him. Um, and the first sort of scene as she approaches this town is this gas station scene, which I remember oh, the first so time I saw it, it just creeped me the fuck out. Dogs. Stray dogs. Doesn't sound like dogs. Has to be. Has to be dogs. 
I've hunted in them woods out there. Nothing but quail and rabbits. Rabbits don't make that sound. That's Point Dune ahead, isn't it? Why do you want to go to Point Dune? I'm visiting somebody there. I can't understand why anybody would want to go to Point Dune. Visiting. I mean, it's just a piss poor little town. It's deader than hell. She, she arrives and there's... Um, so she's getting a gas and she's asking sort of directions and this truck pulls up with an albino driver in it. I think, is he an albino? He's got really strange eyes. Um, and there's a load of really... I'm not sure, but he's very strange looking. It's a it's... truck full of dead people. And the gas station attendant starts to get really worried and really scared and sort of tries to get rid of Arietti. Mariana's heels sort of going, get out, she hasn't got the right change. And he's like, get out of here, get out of here. Um, there's also an opener before that, before we sort of hear her side of the story, where there's a guy that's just slaughtered by a kid. And he has his throat slit. So you know she's going into danger straight away, but you don't really know what's going on. And she arrives in this town to the father's home that is this just the strangest fucking place. I know he's an artist, but the walls have got these murals on. And they're, they're like terrifying. they're like they're done by Banksy. <laughs> Even they, though they Banksy do. wasn't born then, yeah, much better than Banksy. I'm not. I'm not a Banksy fan, but they are. They're sort of. They're. It's like an escalator, and there's people just standing around, and they're all painting. Everything's grey, and then in the middle of the room, there's a bed hanging on chains, and you just wonder what sort of guy her dad was. Um, she can't find him, obviously. Um, and that's how it starts. It's just got this really fucking weird vibe from the beginning. Um, as she goes into the town the next day, she goes to this kitsch art gallery, which is another weird sort of, there's a weird vibe. You've got the whole small town thing going on. And they, they say, oh, they didn't, didn't know much about her father and they don't know where he is. But then she meets Tom. And he's well, and they're lovers. obviously lying. Yeah, because it's all very weird. It's like, no, no, we don't know anything. No, we've never sold any of his paintings, and the paintings in that gallery are just awful. <laughs> and it's supposed to be no, like they're ridiculous. A little coastal town. You'd expect them to have some nautical stuff or something, but they just have these really weird kitsch paintings, and the and the couple that run the gallery are weird. Um, when she meets Tom and he's in a motel with his two girlfriends, um, he's interviewing a tramp. Oh, which is uh, Alicia <laughs> Cook Jr., who mm. is all over film noir. He's all over stuff like House on Haunted Hill and Rosemary's Baby. Uh, I feel like he's in so many of these kinds of films yeah. that anytime you see him, you automatically assume something creepy is going to happen. And he, he's and it does. Well, it totally does. But he's like the mad hobo, and he's um we find out that Tom he collects folklore and legends for reasons not disclosed. So he's taping the interview. Um and he's getting this this hobo, he's getting is he named Charlie, I think. He's he's getting paid he some is. booze to tell the story, but he doesn't really want to go too far. But he takes No, he's very he's obviously very scared, and this is a character straight out of Lovecraft. Yeah. Like the, the paranoid drunk who wants to tell you the story but is afraid to tell you the whole story and it's just, it's so effective. Don't be afraid. I'm an ugly old man, but I'm harmless. It's about your daddy. They mustn't hear me. I got him fooled. I get drunk, sleep on the sidewalk like a dog and he let me be. I ain't 
crazy. That old Charlie. What about my father? You have to kill him. You're crazy. You can't bury him. Don't put him in the ground. You gotta burn him. You gotta put fire to his body. So he, he, he does take Arietti to one side and he sort of warns her that her dad was into bad things and that there's like a... a and a, she should leave. He tells her just leave. Which she does. Like, people tell her to leave the whole time and she just doesn't because it's, well, I suppose it's a horror film, so, you know, but the amount of warning she gets from people and she just... It's ridiculous. <laughs> just stays there. She's quite a nervous character. She's not like a survivor type or anything. She's quite nervous. Um, but she doesn't sort of tend to take any notice. Um, he talks about the blood moon, which is a, just brilliant and very biblical as well, I thought. Yes. It's got biblical connotations. Um, and the, the coming of this blood moon every hundred years and this stranger that comes to the town and takes over the people. Um, if somebody had just told me that and my dad was missing, I would go to the police. But she doesn't. She doesn't do that. She, no, she doesn't. And she doesn't listen to the old man who tells her that she has to kill her father and burn his oh, body. Oh, yes, that's it. He goes, burn the body. <laughs> so she just takes that in her stride and invites Tom and his hippie, hippie chicks back to the house. Um, and Michael Greer is just all over her, which is just quite hilarious because he's quite a camp character. Um, and the one girlfriend gets jealous. Joy Bang, who's in Night. Well, I think they woman. both get jealous, or they both get very sort of impatient. Yeah, there's Laura, who's played by Nietzsche Ford. She's the younger of the girlfriends, and she's quite childlike. Yeah, from the Big Bird Cage. Yeah, and then there's Tony, who's played by Joy Bang from Night of the Cobra. So, um, are the two girlfriends? Tony gets fed up, so she storms off into town, and you get the first set, which piece. is a mistake. Yes, um, she gets. It's the first set piece in the film that just makes it so amazing. Where she gets, she's walking down the side of the road and she gets invited into a truckload of zombies who are listening to Wagner, um, blaring, and she gets in there with them, and it's all very weird. And you just think, where's this going? She gets freaked out and gets out of the car because these people are just fucking weird. <laughs> But <laughs> they're not but, people. No, but I feel like it's one of those movies where they make really good use of every time you expect something bad is going to happen, it's diverted. Yeah. But it's only diverted for a few minutes. The pacing is amazing in it. It's just... It's so amazing. It, it just it's builds dead up. On. So it's, it's just stifling by the end. Um, she does get away and she goes into a supermarket and I wanted to point out this predates Dawn of the Dead by five years. This whole zombies in a consumer setting um, where she goes into the supermarket and the town population are in there feasting on the raw meat and they're all zombies. So she tries to escape and it's quite a hideous scene. And it, it's so terrifying. It's It's one of those scenes where if you've, the first, not only the first time you've seen the movie, but the more you see the movie, going into a 24-hour grocery store at like two in the morning, as soon as you get in there, you're like, oh no. The thing oh, is, no, no, yeah, no. Dawn of the Dead made such a big thing about it though. People, when they, when they need somewhere to go and they want to feel safe, they go to the mall. They go to the store. 
And that's where she goes. There's a scene as she comes into the supermarket and she's in the car park looking at the building with all the lights on. And that was years before George Romero did it. So Well, and they have two of those scenes in this Yes. Film. So it is very... Another film that you just think, why don't people talk about this? You know, they talk about Romero, and yes, he was extremely important, but Masara of Evil did this, you know, in 1973, you know, five years before Dawn of the Dead, but yet nobody ever mentions it. It's like, what is that about? And it's such an effective scene. She's trying to get out the door, and they're all, like, piling on her. Yeah, it's it's really, I mean... Much like Let's Scare Jessica to Death, the film uses violence in a very specific, restrained way. And it's definitely more violent than that one, but... I mean, there's some, just... yeah, there's some throat slashings and there's cannibalism in it. But it's but not... But it's terrifying. It's not, the yeah. The grocery scene especially. It's not done in a shock way. Um, the other scene is then we get the other girlfriend who gets fed up with Arietti Which and Tom. Which is almost even worse. So she goes to the cinema and she buys some popcorn. I absolutely love this uh, um, scene. She goes into the cinema. There's no one in there. It's like the middle of the night again. And and the film showing is apparently Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, which is... Yes, <laughs> which... <laughs> <laughs> which you think would be a clue. As it's a, a little bit of a comic nod mm. in a film that is not humorous at all. No, because it's not. There are elements we're talking about them probably sound really camp, but they're not. They don't. They don't seem camp in in the structure of the narrative. Not at all. So she gets in there and she's watching this film, which is actually a western with Sammy Davis Jr. in it. Um, and what they've done is they've edited all the violent scenes. So she sat watching this film with the popcorn. You can just hear people screaming, things burning, people being shot. And it'll flick to the screen. There's a lot of violence on the screen. And she sat there watching this. People are coming in one by one. They're sitting down. So first there's one and then there's five. And then there's yeah, like it keeps ten. it keeps sort of cutting back between her alone in the theater yeah. and her watching the movie and every time it cuts back to her there are more and more people and the, and then to the point where the theater is full and she looks around and thinks hmm this is a bit strange <laughs> and you're like oh god oh god <laughs> and as she tries to escape they all sort of pile on her the screen goes white so it's like the the violence of the screen is then replaced by some real life violence which i thought was a great touch i don't know if the director was making a statement there about violence or whatever but it seems perfectly timed um oh it is and you see all this blood sort of splash across this um blank screen i think as far as like i said earlier how um films like jessica they sort of redefine the vampire myth and here we've got a redefining of the zombie myth in a way in a way, but I think it's also kind of the way I said earlier how let's scare Jessica to death. They seem like ghouls. Here they also kind of seem like ghouls because they're not they're not explicitly undead. No, they seem they're to people. be these they've sort been, of yeah, yeah, they've been taken like over by something. And then well, and the father talks about that in in his diary entries and letters. He talks about how he feels like he's going through a physical change, and. And doesn't I he talk they, about cutting his hand off or something and how it didn't hurt yeah, he anymore? Talks about, he definitely talks about mutilating himself. And I think that, and he feels like he's going cold. And I feel like that, 
they, again, they make such great use of contrasting the voiceovers from the letters with the way the people in town behave. And you really get this sense that you're hearing someone who's gone through this change into some horrible, monstrous, blood moon worshipping ghoul being to actually seeing it in the townspeople. And it's it's so dread-inducing. They call it the waiting, don't they? They just go and stand on the beach. And the, and the beach plays they a do. massive part in the film. Like Almost constantly you hear the sound of waves crashing um, because Arietti's staying in a beach house. And so they and these people, they just assemble on the beach and look at the blood sun. And they've got the idea of this stranger coming as well. He's, yeah, well, there's so there's a prophecy, and it's all about... A stranger coming and a sacrifice and it just... I, I feel like maybe we shouldn't give away the ending. No. Um, you know, I think of all the films, this is one of my particular favourites with Jessica. I think it's so ambiguous. I think as well you've got the madness theme as well. You're not really quite sure whether to trust Arietti. Because <clears throat> you know from the beginning she's in an asylum, so you don't really know... She's traumatised, her father's gone missing. So you don't really know what to believe. Well, and it's also... So I think a lot of people have made this connection between Let's Scare Jessica to Death and Messiah of Evil. But for me, the ultimate comparison is between Mary, Mary, Bloody Mary and Messiah of Evil. Yeah. Because they have all of these crazy parallels between, you know, they're both set at the beach... They both have to do with artists and art galleries. It's about a woman trying to find her father, but maybe also not wanting to find her father because of something horrible that he's involved in. And I, I think really the main difference is in Mary, Mary, Bloody Mary, it's Mary herself who is the monster. I mean, much like Emily in Let's Scare Jessica to Death, she's a new interpretation of a vampire. Yeah. Like she has to use knives and razors and syringes to drink blood. But here, Arletti is the human innocent one, and it's everyone around her who is monstrous. And she is a very innocent character like Jessica. She is. Um, and she just sort of wants to implicitly trust people, but is just sort of preyed upon the whole way but not in a way that's annoying and and I think this again is another connection to this reinterpretation of the woman's film she's not defenseless and she manages to get away she's pretty resourceful but she definitely is put in these situations where she's in some sort of and I think this is another thing that visually is so wonderful She's put in these locations that seem secure, and then you see people through the windows or through the gates trying to get at her, well, and it's just there's In her father's so house up on the ceiling, there's like this stained yes. glass window, and you see the sort of zombie ghouls in this window sort of looking down on her, spying on her. It's so exceptionally creepy. And it keeps saying it's, it's creepy, but it is. It's just, and it's visually, it's a very visual film, very dreamlike narrative. Um, but it's also like Let's Scare Jessica to Death. They do so much with the soundscape. And I mean, obviously, this isn't set in the countryside like that is, but they do so much with the wind, the roaring of the ocean. Like, it's just, they make it such a big part of the soundtrack in a wonderful way. 
And again, it's another sort of electronic but very minimal score. It is a really good score, actually. So from one set of monsters to another and strange lights in the sky, that brings us to a completely change of tone with God Monster <laughs> of Indian Flats, another 1973 feature. Now I know... Which, oh. <laughs> particular love for this one i do i have sort of a strange inexplicable love for this film so over the last couple years i've joked a lot about how i'm the world's staunchest defender of god monster of indian flats and night of the lepus which is for those of you who haven't seen the second one it's basically a they're, they're both usually advertised as animals attack movies. And while <laughs> Night of the Lepus is most definitely an animals attack movie, I mean, it's about killer rabbits. God Monster is so much more than that. Like, when you see, if you read any synopsis of it, or you see the cover art for the DVD, it makes it seem like it's all about a monster sheep who goes on a rampage, but it's actually not about that at all. No, it's so bizarre. I <laughs> or think, only very little. I mean, you had these like strange creature features in the 70s, though, that tend to get overlooked. I mean, you had Trog in 1970. Oh, God. And then Night of the Lepus was, <laughs> I think, 71. And this, and Spawn of Slithis. And I think all of those... <laughs> Um, would make like a, a great marathon because they're just so fucking crazy. They're and they're just, so much fun. Um, directed by Frederick Hobbs. And if you Who, see this other film, uh, Alabama's Ghost, uh, this is actually quite he, normal. <laughs> yeah, this Roseland and Alabama's Ghost are. I mean, Stephen Thrower talks about this in Nightmare USA, and what he has to say about God Monster is basically that those two are so surreal and this one is really the most well, it is. kind I mean, of you, accessible. Yeah, mutated sheep on the rampage, but then Alabama's ghost has got like sideshow spectacles, magic shows, it's got hippies, it's got vampires trying to take over the world, it's got like rock concerts and a voodoo ritual and it's just <laughs> fucking nuts. Um, we should do a standalone episode on that alone because there's just so much in it. Both put out by something weird, which just, you know, says it all, really. I mean... Yeah, God bless him. I think Frederick Hobbs was just a, just a fucking genius. <laughs> oh, yeah. So he, he actually, I think he considered himself more specifically an artist than a filmmaker, but he also was an author. And I feel like I want to talk about this before we try to launch into the plot. So if we can, this very, very low budget film was it's a period piece, but it's shot in this place called Virginia City, which is in Nevada. That is a, not a movie set. It's a real place. That's a gold rush era town that was preserved and turned into a tourist destination. 
And that's how he could get away with all of these set pieces that are so amazing. Well, they were but... having like some sort of like show or event, weren't they, when he went to film it? And so he just factored in all A these festival. people in period yeah, dress. Yeah, the Bonanza Day Festival. Yes. Which is fabulous. But he wrote a book about it. It's called The Richest Place on Earth, The Story of Virginia City in the Heyday of the Comstock Load. But it's like a history of this crazy town. And I, I honestly don't know if he wrote it before or started writing it during the making of this film, but it just seems so insane. And <laughs> Well, the whole thing is insane. It starts off with a guy in a casino in, in Reno, and then he goes off to this town, this town that's sort of been reconstructed by the local mayor, whose mayor, Charles Silverdale, was played by Stuart Lancaster, who was a Russ Meyer regular. He was, he was the old yes, man in Fast and he's very sleazy. He's very sleazy. He was in Mud Honey. He was in, um, what else was he in? Good Morning Goodbye. He was in Super Vixens. He was even in yeah, Seven Minutes, which I just start to write about, which isn't a very good Russ Meyer film. But he's in it as this, like strange sheriff who wants to recreate old world america so he's created this like microcosm in the desert where everybody goes around like they're in a western like all the women and wear bustle dresses and people ride around on horses um in the midst of that a shepherd um who goes home after a bar fight one of his sheep there's like a we were discussing this earlier and we couldn't work out whether it was the sun or an eclipse or there's just bright lights in the sky and this embryo is born. Well, he has a crazy dream. So he gets into a bar fight and has this basically drunk dream about this mutant <laughs> sheep messiah. And he gets taken. It's this guy named Eddie. And he gets taken in by this wacky scientist. Because, of course, in the middle of nowhere, there's a wacky scientist. Oh, of course. Named, named Dr. Clemens. So Dr. Clemens is he doesn't really live in the town. He has this sort of weird laboratory in a cave, because I guess why would you not? But he takes in the shepherd, who develops a relationship with the doctor's like wackadoo hippie assistant. Oh my whose god, name she's is amazing. She's actually the, in yes. Alabama's Ghost. I mean, it shares some of the car. She's in that. She's in Alabama's Ghost is Dr. Caligula. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel like they take any excuse to say her name. Like if you oh. had a drinking game around someone saying Mariposa in this movie, <laughs> you would be d dead to the world. <laughs> but one of the sheep so bursts this like strange thing though that looks like a yes, bleeding but pot. Also, well, so his his mutant messiah dream <laughs> becomes true, and they they find this like infant sheep that's deformed, and Doctor Clemens becomes obsessed with it. And wants to help it grow and see what it does. But that's only a fraction of the film. And yeah. we don't actually return to the mutant sheep until much later. I mean, you get an hour go by. And what then happens is we go back to old um, Stuart Lancaster. Old Mayor Charles Silverdale, I should say. And in this sort yes. of subplot, which is actually really the main plot. And it's, I, I don't know that we're going to be able to get through this no. without me, like, crying with laughter because it's just so amazing. So this black guy turns up in the town and he wants to... Barnstable. Yeah, Barnstable. He plays Alabama in Alabama's Ghost as well. And he turns up and he wants to buy the mines on behalf of his employer. It's all terribly involved, but it gets into this, like, strange... It gets into this, like, strange sort of, like... 
thing where they 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 just they they just they try to run him out of town yeah and and it's sort of like a game of one-upmanship and they sort of he but won't the, go but the way they the dog funeral they get him they get him drunk and they convince him that he shot the mayor's beloved dog which which they get he didn't the, really no. the dog isn't dead at all the dog is just dead and the whole town yes, he has plays a dead for it but yes they have a town <laughs> funeral for for this fucking dog and they make the dog get in the coffin <laughs> because if you were gonna run someone out of town that's what you do uh that's what i do um, i mean and then oh, so then they send him to prison he feels so guilty though and he go, tries to say sorry to the guy and the guy looks really sad and he turns his back to the black guy <laughs> and he's just like beaming it's like yeah we've got him <laughs> we've got him now that doesn't work though <laughs> No, work. and what they do next is even better. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> Basically, they this. get one of the like town muscle to to go talk to him, and they wind up going to a bar and having a brandy together. And it turns into this super weird scene it's really where erotic. It was like no, me? where it seems like it seems like the. It seems like the guy's trying to hit on him and is maybe trying to get him so drunk that he takes him home. And there's all this like weird seduction and then Barnstable gets the crap beaten out of him and eventually they try to lynch him. Yeah. Which, and then they frame that part's him for, not they funny. They frame him for attempted murder. All this is going on while this mutant is like growing in a chamber up in the mad lab um they they think that the doctor's up to something so they spy on his rubbish being dumped in a landfill he's <laughs> <laughs> just so nuts and he dumps off this sort of toxic waste he's cloth and they're like sniffing it and going oh well he's definitely up to something it's something on this this cloth you know <laughs> and it's like of course the sheep emits this like hazardous gas um that's his <laughs> weapon um by the time it actually escapes there's like a full civil war going over about this black guy that they're gonna try and hang just because they don't like him and um the whole town are going off and this sheep sort of comes out which looks fucking ridiculous <laughs> uh it escapes but so sad he's so sad he um what's her name the hippie lady mariposa mariposa <laughs> She dances on the hillside with the sheep <laughs> to communicate him. with like, him. She's like, oh, he just wants, come, he just wants food, he just wants to be loved. And then she starts doing Which is actually true. Hurdy-gurdy dance with him until, like, you know, Eddie comes along and tries to shoot it. But the, the best thing about that is they know that this, like, mutant beast is rampaging across the countryside. There's an air raid siren going off constantly and the town's put under martial law. And for some reason, some idiot thinks it's a really good idea to send their kids out unattended for a picnic. <laughs> Adults believe it. Yeah. Mm, these are good hot dogs. Yeah. Mm, these are good hot dogs. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. 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 Y
and they're all assholes. Like I, I, so I think it's come up on this podcast before that like I'm not wild about children, but these children in particular are just assholes. Like there's a scene earlier during the Bonanza Day festival during a pie eating contest where the kids are just like throwing pies at everyone. Oh, like God, they don't yes, give a fuck. The pie eating contest. It's just so but bizarre. This film. It's, it's so strange, but. So the kids are all sitting in this weird circle unattended to having a picnic and the sheep who the sheep's <laughs> efforts to even just walk in a straight line are amazing. It's a guy but, with a so, massive thing obviously erected on top of him. So he's having yeah, trouble. And walking it's like one it's like one really, really long arm. <laughs> And so he smells food and is like, oh, look at these friends. I'm going to go join their picnic and walks up to them. And the children fucking freak out and start screaming. And in the single best scene in the movie, and I I actually referenced this way more than anyone should. (laughs) This poor terrified mutant sheep runs to a gas station and is so freaked (laughs) out. is so freaked out that he sets the gas station on fire. <laughs> like you do. I mean, sometimes you knock things over, you're not in control of all of your mutant limbs. I mean, God, it is just so mental. It sort of ends up with the mayor. He, he decides he's going to make the sheep into the eighth wonder of the world. And yeah, no, this- instead of killing the sheep, and there's this weird, in, like, there's this, this scene like, with all these guys on horseback who seem like they're going to kill the sheep, but instead they round up the sheep and put him in a cage and, and want to make him... In this yeah. thing, and the, and then all the townspeople just start throwing rocks at him. It's really mean. It's so I just sad. Think that poor sheep. He didn't, you know, he didn't want to hurt anybody. Look, fellow citizens, feast your eyes on the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> He just wanted friends and to join a picnic. <laughs> I feel like this is this is the human struggle <laughs> in in sheep form. But oh, that poor sheep! No, it's <laughs> so sad. And oh, so I, I think also the reason I also mention um, there's this other like strange little sub thing that there's this like brothel in town that's like a oh god brothel. i hope to be madam alta who's played by peggy <laughs> with Brown. the screaming prostitutes yeah, and she she is absolutely brilliant in it she's supposed to be like a mystic hooker uh, she's also another <laughs> one who's in alabama's ghost is a, like a, is a, like a lusty vampire in that but she's absolutely brilliant she she's just sort of keeps coming out with these little nuggets of wisdom <laughs> She's a clairvoyant. She tells fortunes. And, it's just and like, they make no sense. No. And, well, and I think she tells Barnstable his fortune at some point and tells him he should leave. Yeah, and then and then the gay sort of homoerotic henchman comes in and says, find out what's going on. Because they actually believe that she has some psychic power. They do. <laughs> oh, it's just so strange. Go to get laid and get your fortune told. It could only happen I mean, there in that desert. What else that would you want? town. It just really could. I just, you know, I'd like to say 
you know, why the hell wasn't sort of Frederick Hobbs allowed to make more films? I know, um, I think when he did... Well, this was, this was the end. I mean, this was such apparently a commercial disaster that this is why he stopped making films, from what I understand. Yeah, he got... I read somewhere... No, I read in Stephen Foe's book, actually. I read in Nightmare USA. He had, on the back of Alabama's Ghost, but before it had actually been screened, he got a three-picture deal... Um, and he was going to be given $200,000 budget for each one. And because Alabama's ghost flopped so badly, he um, they retracted that and they said, you can just have one more picture. picture. And they oh, cut the no. budget to 130 grand. And this was what he made. So maybe he was like trying to rein it in a bit. Not that he does that much. Um, compared to Alabama, it's just, you know nothing but it's got all these great american themes i mean you've got racism you have small town corruption you've got science gone wrong it's just (laughs) amazing it's just a totally amazing amazing film um it is really sad that hobbs didn't make more i know it probably wouldn't appeal to most people they'd just be like what the fuck is this but i just thought (laughs) well those people are wrong they are they are wrong this movie so this doesn't have anything to do with God Monster of Indian Flats because really nothing on earth has anything to do with God Monster of Indian Flats. But another movie that shows up in Nightmare USA that is really, really unfairly neglected, but in a totally different way, is John Pazer's 1974 film, The Centerfold Girls. The Sublime which... The Centerfold Girls. The Centerfold Girls. They're the most beautiful girls in the world. 307 from Seattle. They're ready for anything, anywhere, anytime. I've done everything you asked for, lady, but I couldn't fix the generator. No electricity? No, but I filled the kerosene lamps and provided plenty of candles. You know something? What? You are a goddamn rude son of a bitch. And you're a pain in the ass, lady! You didn't have to talk to me like that in front of the girls. Why not? You're nothing but a scavenger. How far is it from beauty to ugliness? You should have been kicked out on your ass ten years ago. That superwoman crap may work very well with the others, but not with me. I knew you went, remember? You show as much creativity in your feet as you do in your back to be a big Get mistake. out! Get the hell out! How far is it from beauty to terror? Displaying your body is filth. You dirty the mind of others. Do you know what they should do with little girls like you? It's it's so amazing in a way that it almost kind of comes from out of nowhere because it's you know, it's at least half a decade before slasher movies started and it's not a Jalo film, but it kind you could kind of link it to some of them, but it has got about... very very Jalo-esque aspects though. That's what I love about it. It's very artistic. Um It is. And and I think it's unusual because it's a film about a demented psychopath kind of Kind of along the Norman Bates line, played but by the way wonderful more, Andrew yes. Pine. Oh my God, the he's wonderful Andrew Pine. He did. A I good don't psycho. love him as much as Pataki, but <laughs> he's close. I think. When did he do Barn of the Naked Dead? That was around this time as well. Oh, he that plays was, a think, psycho yeah. in that as well, and he plays quite a good psycho in that. He's like a. Yeah, well, he's such a good psycho. He, he sort of 
keeps women hitchhikers in his barn and runs like a human circus. But but here, as Clement Doan, he just really, I think this is definitely one of his best performances. Well, and it's weird because much like Pataki, he's somebody who's able to bridge that gap between mainstream and cult i mean he's in simon king of the witches he's in the town that dreaded sundown but he's in all these tv shows well he'd worked with um john pacer before this before making this in in a western series which is quite yeah he's in everything so like every kind of movie it's like oh you did that western how would you like to come and play this psycho clement dunn yeah okay I think and he's so good. I saw an interview with him actually. I think it's on the Australian disc, and he just talks about the film with so much love. He just really Which, had a ball making it, and he just says it was just so much fun. He just loved it. He said he was just killing sort of naked women, and he just really, really loved loved playing the character. You could just tell he just got so much love for the film, and he's so great in it. Hello. I told you I wouldn't forget you, Charlene. I want to help you. Charlene, it's for you. It's old weirdo again. Tell the old weirdo I don't have time to play games. Listen, she doesn't have time to play phone games right now, huh, weirdo? Uh, Clement Dunn, he's he's not he's like a moralist, isn't he? He kills centerfolds basically to save them from themselves. Um, he stalks yeah, them. It's... He makes creepy little phone calls <laughs> where he sort of tells them where they're going wrong, and he collects porno mags and cuts their faces out. <laughs> well, it's weird because I like when I so I had seen this before, but when I rewatched it, it really made me think. And I guess because I have sort of the American Gothic brain going right now, but it really made me think that he's almost like a Flannery O'Connor character. Yeah, like he dresses like a preacher, definitely, and he has this moralistic theme, but it's just so over the top in such a really, really nasty, mean spirited way that takes you by surprise the first time you see the film. I think when it first comes on, so the first scene is he's dragging a dead woman from his car and she's had her throat slit. And it was, yes. She was played by a stripper, so she's topless. He's dragging her on the beach. So you sort of know, you know, from the offset, he's the killer. Um, and then the thing I love about it is it's almost like an anthology film because it's in chapters. So he goes through his little book and he and he finds the women and then he stalks them. And each one's got like a little separate story. Um, the first one is Miss March, who's Jackie, played by um, Jamie Lynn Bauer. Um, who's great. Who is a very unfortunate lady. I mean, she she starts off, she's been threatened by this stalky guy who's Clement. She's going off to a job interview. She picks up this seemingly innocent girl and gives her a lift on her way to this job interview where the guy isn't there. So they stay at her aunt's house and it turns out that this woman is actually like one of those... 70s psycho hippies that they <laughs> they loved the psycho hippie in those days and invites yeah, her and other feel psycho like, hippie mates round. I feel like that's gonna be not only a big theme of these 70s films but something that's sort of uniquely American Gothic is this weird sort of post Manson yeah, family. It's definitely when, like when when hippies become more mainstream, there's this fear of hippies gone wrong that becomes very like and almost no film does it better than <laughs> than the first segment in this well, one. It's amazing. I think in in his interview in Nightmare USA though, um, the director he said he wasn't really referencing the Manson thing. It was just something. 
you know, that was around at the time. But um, there are elements of the Manson thing in it, not just with the hippies, but the way that Clement stalks people and gets into their houses. And that will come up in the second story. So poor Jackie, she gets terrorised by these hippies. They sort of rape her. They paint her face like a clown. I shouldn't laugh, but it's so over the top. And I think the director said he got the only thing he regretted was he got too carried away with the hippies. So she gets away. She does, you know, she gets away in in that sort of tradition. She escapes. And when she gets back the next day, she just gets killed. (laughs) Well, no. And so the worst part for me is that. Yes. No, it, it gets worse. So the hippies don't actually rape her. They attempt to rape her and she defends herself and runs away and is picked up by. Okay, so. She's there to interview for a nursing job, but the she like her interview got pushed back because the doctor's out of town, but there's a man and his wife who sort of manage the doctor's office and the man is creepy as fuck, like creepier than Clement in my opinion. And he pretends like he's taking care of her and he brings her back to her house and says all this really disturbing stuff to her and is gonna rape her and she's so just like physically exhausted and terrorized and downtrodden that she doesn't try to fight him off and he doesn't have sex with her because he says that it's too easy yeah which is one of the most disturbing parts of the entire film it's a very mean-spirited film though it really it's horrible i'd uh, like to apologize for moving you out of the motel but it's my wife. She thought with you around her, there might be trouble. It's all right. I understand. Um, there isn't going to be any trouble, is there? I mean, uh, between you and me? What are you talking about? You know damn well what I'm talking about. What do you think you're kidding? You're just like those little whores that tore up the place. You were so tanked up last night, you would have balled any guy that propositioned you. You're a bigger bum than I thought. Even the worst Main Street sluts put up a fight. No, when it comes out easy, baby, it's not worth it. Um, then old Andrew Prine gets in, and 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 this is one of my favourite pieces, and I think it was one of Prine's. He talks about it in the interview when he kills her. It's with a, it's so good. It's with a razor. Well, this is where the Jallo thing comes in because there's a lot of Dutch angles in it. There's a lot of wide angles. There's a thing where you see Clement in his room, and it's a totally white room, but he's there dressed in black. There's these little oh, artistic yeah, touches, and when he, he slashes her across the throat with a razor blade. And this blood splashes against the window. Um, it's just it's just so amazing. You don't see that in slashes. You don't see that in proto slashes. It's just very Italian. I think the director spent years in Spain prior to this, though. So I don't know if that was an influence. There's definitely like a Euro influence in there towards the violence is mean-spirited, but arti- it is artistic in, in a, a number of the scenes. So I don't know... You know, he doesn't really mention it in any of his interviews. But it seems to be that he's referencing European cinema on on some level there. No, I totally agree. And I think that's part of what makes it so amazing and so hard for me to understand why nobody talks about this film. This will definitely appeal to Jano fans. 
if they haven't checked oh, it out, I would say totally check this out. You know, it's and not... I think even to slasher fans. Yeah, I mean, although it's it hasn't got the fun elements of the slasher though. No, because it's really mean. Um, the the second story follows a group of sort of glamour models um, and some photographers, and they go off to this house. Um, with the rudest, um, they get on a boat. This house is on an island. And apparently the house was where they shot the ghost of Mrs. Muir, according to... If that makes yeah, sense. I mean, it's beautiful. It is really beautiful, this sort of ornate house with these beautiful gardens. And it's Yeah, like, it's like on a hill overlooking the ocean. It's It really feels, I think it feels more European in the second, it, it, like in this second segment because it's so... Like, models going to this lush, ornate setting. Well, going back to the gothic thing, the house is very gothic. Like, the interior is really over-the-top gothic. It is. Um, The guy who takes them there, they charter this boat, just shouts the whole time. He's a really strange little character in it, the little boatman. So they get off. Yes. (laughs) After this guy's shouting at them, and they're all tired, and they come into this house. The house has got no electricity, so they have to be by candlelight, which makes it even better. And, of course, wearing nightgowns. And wearing nightgowns. So it becomes quite gothic on that level, and Prine gets on the island and picks them off one by one. And it is very Manson. Some of the murders. A woman gets his throat slashed on the lawn. He's in the house sort of stalking them one by one. And there's a lot of really good set pieces in it um, with lots of shadow and lots of sort of gothic sort of tropes brought into that. Which is weird because the the first and the third segments feel so much more American and they take place in these like strange motels and offices and it's such a contrast but such a nice contrast but it's almost like he is referencing sort of european films just with that one middle segment because there's absolutely with the house and the candlelight and everything you've got all the shadows and he just goes through the house and he kills them all which is very manson their bodies the cops turn up and the bodies are just left there mutilated which is such a great scene it it cuts to this it cuts to this detective and all the bodies on this like beautiful green lawn just covered with sheets. Which is why I thought of Manson, which at the time is, wow, you know, it was so close to the yeah. knuckle because it was, you know, around that time. Um, now the third story. Oh. oh <laughs> Tiffany Bowling is Vera. She becomes oh the God. last victim. So, she's amazing. I think we need to talk about her for a second. Definitely. Like, she's such a... I feel like she doesn't get as much attention as some of the other 70s actresses, but I mean, she's in everything from Wicked Wicked, which we should really do a standalone episode for because it's one of my favorite 70s movies, but Kingdom of the Spiders, Candy Snatchers, and I think she, I mean, she definitely doesn't steal the film from prime but i think she steals the film from the other women definitely i mean she's the only one the girls in it are really good but she's the only one that's actually really got i mean she's she's a a prototype for a final girl she She she's quite fierce she doesn't take any of his shit basically um she's another unfortunate one though as Vera, so she's being threatened by prime she leaves her home and goes to a motel where she's raped by sailors well, and her, so she leaves her home 
after he sent, so she's a, an airline stewardess and she gets in and she finds these beautiful flowers and thinks they're from her boyfriend, learns they're not from her boyfriend and says, well, fuck this and decides to go on a road trip. And her idiot roommate answers the phone when she's gone and says, basically tells Andrew Prine's character exactly where she's going to be because he gives her some cock and bull story about how he's her mother's doctor. Yeah. Like she doesn't even bother to check. <laughs> she's like, oh, this is her address. I think one of my favorite set pieces comes up in this um, segment as well. And I was talking to you earlier because I thought it yes, was cut. Yes, this is the bathroom the, one. Yeah, from the Australian Blu-ray. And I'm going to have to go back and check because I might have missed it. But he kills the roommate as well, and he go, and there's this just this amazing scene. It's not a very long scene where he creeps into the house, and he's got these really snazzy shoes, these black and white shoes as well, which I you love see, the shoes. <laughs> got, they're great. The shoes you see this close up, but he goes in and he's watching this girl in the bathroom, and she's sort of washing her hair. She's topless, and it is really Jalo esque. Before he goes and he slashes her throat. Um, and then we go back to Vera again. But I think that is another... It's just so full of... I shouldn't say beautiful because they're quite horrific, but they are very artful, no, but they are violent beautiful. set pieces as well. Um, then poor old Vera gets raped by sailors, like you do, because they just have to stuff it in. It's not even just Prine. It's like everybody. Um, no, and I think that's another element that is important for even more than euro horror it's because there's definitely a lot of creepiness in euro horror but i i feel like these american films border way more on exploitation and it's this sense that like not only is the monster or the killer gonna get you but everyone else is gonna get you too go get the room okay okay what's your rush she isn't going anywhere is she except the bed <laughs> i don't feel very good I don't feel very good. I think I'm... Come here, Barry. I on. think I'm going to be Come sick. Here. Come here. Wait, everything's going round. I, 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 I don't feel very good. I think I'm, okay. I'm going to be sick. Listen, you just take good care of us, and we're going to take really good care oh. of you. Well, there's nobody, um, apart from the girls, like most people in it, they're not very nice people. Um, there's a lot of sort of... But the girls aren't nice either. No, not really. I suppose they're not. Um, well, I mean, not the protagonists, but like their friends or the girls that they encounter. I do love his. I, w I wanted to say about his phone calls because he does. He doesn't do dirty phone calls. He gives. He like you said about the preacher, and it's very Flannery O'Connor. He doesn't ring is. them up and perv on them. He rings them up and like gives them this bizarre sermon. Um, well, he says, "I want. I want to help you." Them. Yeah, I want to help you. You know, uh, and and he get and he takes Vera in, and I think uh, to start with, he he starts to think that she's a nice girl, but then she, I he he then gets it into his head. Actually, no, she's not, and he starts to go psycho on her. Well, he gets it into his head because so her car breaks down, and she gets picked up by these two. Are they Marines? They're or are they sailors. They're in sailor costumes so, just to make it more but, ridiculous. But I think they're in the Navy because they talk about how they have to be back to base soon. So they're supposed to be these sort of like nice American upstanding naval officers and they're nice to her, but there's this awkward scene. So to start with, and I, I definitely have sort of crazy personal space issues, but watching this last segment, 
these Navy officers pick her up and they have this giant fucking station wagon, but they make her sit in the front seat between the two of them. And they're and it's hideous. Like, they're revolting. Why couldn't she sit I in the know. back? There's plenty of room. But there's this weird scene where they pull the car over and the guy in the passenger seat tells her how beautiful she is and... It's such a horrible, like, you're like, nope, uh-uh. And she's like, yeah, why don't we keep moving? And so they pull over to this rest stop and they get some beers. And she goes to go to the bathroom or she goes to go somewhere. And they drug her beer because they talk about how they want to rape her. And they take her back to this hotel room where they do rape her. And Clement is listening at the door, and you get this sense that he's now convinced... He wasn't sure before, but he's now convinced that she's dirty because of the rape. Would you stand in front of me naked and let me make love to you? Yes. Yes. Anything. I knew you were unclean. Exposing your body like some kind of sideshow freak. You dirty the minds of others. It's not like that at all. Please, you've got to listen to me. Giving your body to those sailors. Spreading your legs like the whore that you are. I was going to talk about that, actually, because Andrew Prine, in his interview, shed some light on that, and he says... You know, he talks about the reason why he kills. And he says he's ashamed of his sexuality. But he sees everything. Which is clear in that And he scene. sees everything. In, he, he said the white bedroom in the black wardrobe was his idea. Um, and because the killer sees, he doesn't see colour. He, all he sees is black and white. And so that's why he kills. He kills people to see colour. Which I thought was quite philosophical of old Prime. He's it such is. a legend. Um Final note on the cast. I wanted to say Ray Danter, who plays. Um, oh yes, he actually directed *Crypt of the Living Dead*. Did he really? He did. Um, so he is he the guy who plays the weird producer? Yeah, in he's the second he's segment? in the second se- segment. He sort of he gets called a pimp by one of the other ladies at the dinner table, but he's sort of like the photographer and the. I, d- I suppose because they're doing like a, a fashion, they're doing a glamour shoot is photography. So I'm not sure what you call him, but he's sort of the head of it all. Um, he's like a producer. Yeah, kind he of. plays him. But he and he also worked with Prine on that Western series. Um, and apparently they didn't yes. get along. But then he they went to Spain in the end and they did they did um, Hannah, Queen of the Vampires or, or uh, Crypt of the Living Dead or the other title is La Tumba de la Isla Maldita. Um, which has got Mark Damon and Patty Shepard. Ah. <laughs> I think and so recently you, got a Blu-ray we... release. So I thought that was really interesting because, you know, you think they're in this sort of strange proto-slasher, but then they're in Spain making a, a purebred gothic horror later on. and Which is a wonderful and bonding over it because they didn't particularly get yeah. on. So, you know, it's. I think the cast, though, a lot of the cast do come with a good pedigree as well which is great about a lot of these films. Some of the people, some of the films have got complete unknowns, but then when you have got people come up like Andrew Prine or Michael Pataki, they've they've all been in these like so many amazing films that it, it sort of, you know, it's great to make those connections. It must well, have been a great time. I think time. it's weird. I think it's weird because at least for me, watching Euro horror, you see the same faces pop up over and over again. But in these low budget American films, 
I don't think that's as common. So it's kind of nice to see the connection between everything. And you do get these actors as well, like you said, and they they turn up in mainstream films. A lot of them turn up in American TV. Like if you look at a lot of the credits in this, a lot of the people were in sort of mainstream TV shows of the time, like Chips and Charlie's Angels and Kintzy and all that. So and Murder, She Wrote. Yeah, I feel they just like pop everyone in these movies is in Murder, She so Wrote. So you just think it must have been a really fun time to be an actor because, you know, you were doing... I mean, Prine says that in his interview, you know, he was making horror films, but then he was making westerns and he was making quite normal films. And so he said it was just really fun time to be working in the industry. Actually, something I wanted to say earlier that I totally forgot about speaking about television. So Grave of the Vampire was based on a novel called The Still Life written by David Chase who wrote pretty much all of Kolchak the Night Stalker and then went on to write The Sopranos. So it just, I guess there's a weird connection between American cult films and American TV. Oh, definitely. Thank you so much for listening and tune back in two weeks for our follow-up Nightmare USA themed episode. I'd just like to mention the reissue of Spectacular Optical's book, Satanic Panic, Pop Cultural Paranoia in the 1980s, an essay collection that was released last year that I am a proud contributor of. You can find it at fabpress.com, and I believe it's still in pre-order right now, but it should be out this summer. We've also begun our American Gothic-themed summer over at Diabolique with content that includes film, literature, music, art, and culture essays. This week, for example, we'll have pieces on Freaks, Robert Altman, Roger Corman, a documentary on the Process Church, and much more. And Kat, did you have anything you'd like to mention? Yeah, Arrow just announced um, another project that I was involved with um, for Arrow Academy. They're releasing The Glass Key, a noir starring Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake, and I did contributed to the liner notes for that. Um, and also, everyone keep checking out our American Gothic season that's going to be running for the next eight weeks. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. Please follow us on social media and let us know what you think. Thanks. <laughs>